This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast, November 2021, getting to the end of the year. Ryan, how you doing? The end of 2021. Uh, I know. 2022. We're, that'll be the good year now. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be it. Jeez. Mm. Well, luckily, you've always had Rory and I every month, like clockwork, to yes, listen to and cheer you up. Since 2016. Seems like just yesterday. I don't even want to think about the things we could do back in 2016 that we didn't have to worry about today. <laughs> That's true. I don't That's even want to true. think about it. <laughs> but enough chatting about bygone times, halcyon days as they were. Let's get into the articles for November 21. Let's and we will talk first about an article called Disparities in Accessing and Reading Open Notes in the Emergency Department Upon Implementation of the 21st Century Cures Act. And our lead author here is Rohit B. Sangal. And they are in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine. And this is a bit of a tell me what I already knew, but using numbers that aren't necessarily generalizable sort of article. And as of the 21st Century Cures Act, there's a new element of transparency in medicine, which is generally a good thing, mandating open access of clinical notes to patients in contexts where the therapeutic relationship is preserved. This study details effectively a descriptive study of one health system and the patterns of online access capability within, looking at how many persons visiting the ED even had portal access, and then within that population, if anybody even bothered to go and access these newly opened clinical notes. Over 93,000 clinical encounters, these authors found that only 49% of those patients had even bothered to set up their online portal access. Then, of those with portal access, only 14% went on to access a so-called open note. The precise numbers in their demographics aren't quite as important as the general trends, as mentioned above, since this is just one health system in the Northeast with its own specific population. But generally, folks who were going to read a note did so about 24 to 36 hours later. Folks who were under 18 were much less likely to be set up with access and then also less likely to read their notes. Both admitted and discharged patients were similarly likely to read notes, although for obvious reasons, the ones who were admitted took a little bit longer to do so. Non-English speaking reduced the likelihood of both having set up portal access and the likelihood of reading notes. Non-white ethnicity also reduced the likelihood of having set up portal access and the likelihood of reading notes. Private insurance favored having set up portal access and the likelihood of reading notes. And there is probably some collinearity between all of these features given the patient population that they had. The overall point here is that the idea of open notes as increasing patient engagement, decreasing errors, and improving therapeutic potential, clearly a lot more work needs to be done to educate and encourage the underrepresented groups to engage, much less everybody who comes to the emergency department to participate better in their care. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums this up. I think a lot of the risk factors identified in this trial are also risk factors identified in many trials that are other risk factors for inequities in access to healthcare. So I'm not sure if this is a singularity or if this is just representing a more widespread inequity in healthcare. But either way, it's definitely good to know what to do with this information is obviously another question. 
Yeah. I mean, it's probably the same patient population that doesn't necessarily take all the medications as prescribed precisely. The ones who don't necessarily go to their primary care follow-ups are the same ones that don't have the portal access set up and so on and so forth. So there's, like I said, lots of collinearity here, but there's obviously a lot of non-modifiable risk factors and then a lot of different cultural things that need to be taken into account to better improve patient engagement with their healthcare. Right, right. I think one of the key points is here is getting to the underlying causes, not just simply thinking that if we can get people to access their notes more often we'll have better outcomes, right? Like <laughs> that, that might not work. When you make it mandatory to access your portal to get a reduction in your health insurance costs, I'm not sure that really leads to better outcomes or more engagement. So it would be important to make sure you're not just testing to take the test, but rather actually getting to what's causing this. Although I probably would suggest if a for-profit company is reducing the amount number of premiums for people accessing their portal, they must have some data that supports it as a cost-effectiveness thing, maybe if it's not published, but internally, because they aren't usually altruistic actors. That is a fair point. All right, well, let's move on. Our next article is Diagnostic Accuracy of Point-of-Care Ultrasound for Intussusception, a Multi-Centered Non-Inferiority Study of Paired Diagnostic Tests. So as emergency physicians, we're continuing to expand our diagnostic capabilities with point-of-care ultrasound. It started with the FAST study, moving on to diagnosing intrauterine pregnancy, moving on to pneumonia, and even diagnosing appendicitis. Studies have found that emergency physicians can be trained to accurately identify many abnormalities on bedside ultrasound. So these authors thought to add to this expanding list by examining the diagnostic accuracy of POCUS to identify intussusception. They performed a multi-center non-inferiority observational study among a convenient sample of children ages three to six years old with a clinical suspicion of intussusception. Using 35 emergency physicians who completed an ultrasound fellowship, held a registered diagnostic medical sonography designation, or had previously completed at least 20 abdominal POCUS exams with at least one positive intussusception study, the authors compared the diagnostic accuracy of POCUS to radiology-performed ultrasound. Their primary outcome was whether POCUS or radiology-diagnosed ultrasound correctly identified clinically important intussusception, and the gold standard they used was intussusception that required radiographic or surgical reduction during or within a seven-day period from the first ED visit. Overall, they enrolled 256 patients. 58 or 22% of these children had a clinically important case of intussusception. 21% or 55 of them, so 55 out of the 58, were treated with radiographic reduction and 16 required surgery. So obviously there was some overlap between the two. POCUS identified 60 cases of positive for clinically important interception. So there were four false positives and two were false negatives. The diagnostic accurate of POCUS was 97.7%. That compared to 99.3% with the radiology ultrasound. Among the sonographers, when they had a high reported confidence, so when they really believed in what they were seeing, their accuracy was 98.1%. When they weren't so sure, when they had low confidence, it was only down to 94.4%. So not a real big difference. So all in all, I thought this was a really well-done study. Clinicians doing the scans did appear to be blinded to the radiography scans. There's a number of critiques. The big one is that the actual follow-up of one week was only 74%. So obviously there could be some cases of missed interception, which would affect their diagnostic numbers. The other big thing is here, obviously, these are all very highly trained clinicians. Most of them had done a fellowship. They all had a lot of training in abdominal ultrasound. So there's obviously a question of generalizability. That being said, EM clinicians have proven themselves capable capable of diagnostic competency in other areas of ultrasound with a small amount of training. And it's not surprising or hard to believe that this translates to the diagnosis of intussusception. 
Yeah, I mean, the diagnostic sonographer to whom you refer your patient is not a radiologist with four years of medical school and three years of training and then sonography fellowship on top of it. It's an ultrasound technician who's taken a course that's probably not too dissimilar overall to the number and volume of the ultrasounds performed by people doing ultrasound fellowships or who are faculty in ultrasound at academic institutions. It's just a matter of time and commitment and volume and seeing both positives and negatives. And just like anybody else, any other human on Earth, if you do enough ultrasound as an emergency physician, you'll be as good as the people who are doing ultrasound over in the radiology suite. Also, doing ultrasounds on kids is so nice. Everything looks so clear. It's way, it's so much easier. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, this is a pretty rare diagnosis. So I'm pretty impressed that they got this. I mean, it's two years of study over 17 sites together, 256 children. So this is a pretty big undertaking. So I'm just impressed that they actually managed to do this study so nicely yeah. to some extent and get a nice solid number of interceptions. I mean, this is 58 interceptions. Yeah. It's a pretty rare diagnosis. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah, and to keep their methodology so high, I mean, they were fairly disciplined in how they collected their data. So all in all, very well done. So, Just nitpicking here and there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on to another article. So this was called Personal Protective Equipment Adherence of Pediatric Resuscitation Team Members During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And the lead author here is Emily Alberto, and she's at Children's National Hospital. Ah, so here we are again, traveling back in time to report on the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, with the sort of mistakes were made perspective. And when I mean early days, I mean early. These authors are reporting from March to June 2020, the very beginning of awareness and understanding of the virus. I mean, in March, I was still traveling, like flying cross country in March. So this is like the early, early days. This particular article reports on appropriate use of PPE, which these authors had handy from their routine use of video recordings of pediatric resuscitation events in which aerosol generating procedures were performed. Per the article, at the time the study period began, mandated PPE included scrub caps, eyewear, and an N95 mask. And then partway through the study, additional interventions were rolled out to ensure PPE compliance. PPE compliance, of course, however, was partly hindered by, as you may fondly recall, PPE shortages. The results here are unfortunately quite ugly. There were only 19 observed resuscitations in their video library available for review. There were many more occurred, but patient consent was only provided for about half of them. And in 89% of them, involved healthcare workers had at least one incidence of non-adherence. And non-adherence included both absence or incomplete use and was virtually equally distributed across all possible types of PPE, including 50% non-adherence with headwear, eyewear, mask, gown, and even gloves, <laughs> with the aggregate of these getting up to that 89% with some individual type of non-adherence. They were actually able to add up the number of minutes of aggregate exposure, and they found, most importantly, eyewear was absent or inadequate for 40% of the time, and masks were absent or inadequate for 30% of the time. Adherence, as you probably might expect, gradually improved over time, both because of the interventions performed, likely, and because of the increasing availability of PPE and the increasing understanding of the dangerousness of the virus. They were not able to break down their review to individual provider roles to describe whether certain positions at the bedside were more or less likely to be wearing appropriate PPE, unfortunately. So, 
Just a little bit of post-traumatic stress disorder yet again, I suppose, looking back and reliving those glory days, knowing what we now know about ensuring staff safety and how it's an aerosolized virus instead of a droplet virus and how utterly we failed our clinicians, both either in education and or in supplying them with the correct PPE in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah. When you look at articles looking at how good we are at wearing PPE outside of a pandemic, I think it, we perform just as well or as poorly as here. So obviously it seems to translate nicely. I'm not sure how generalizable this is. It's a single center. It's pediatrics. How does it generalize into adult emergency medicine? How many of these cases came in without much of warning and you just kind of jumped into it with what you could? So it is a little bit unclear, but I would imagine that our performance would be pretty similar across the board. I guess the question is, do you really think that we perform better now than we did at the start of the pandemic? Or is this just our general ability to wear PPE when someone is watching? (laughs) It seems to be imperfect. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, certainly some things have changed. I think in the, probably at the height of the pandemic, I think people were as adherent to PPE as they possibly could be before vaccinations were rolled out. I think to some extent, there may be a little bit of laxity now that people are like, oh, I'm double vaccinated. I just had my booster. Maybe I can put my stuff on on the fly while we're getting this patient situated. But maybe these earliest days, I think, is where the culture hadn't changed yet to the sort of like there are no emergencies in a pandemic. Like get your stuff on, get yourself protected first and then go treat the patient because we can't continue treating the overwhelming surge of patients without doctors. Yep, fair. All right, so let's move on. It's talking about emergency preparedness outside of the pandemic. This article is treating pediatric and geriatric patients at risk for suicide in general emergency departments, perspectives from emergency department clinical leaders. And the lead author is Cadence Bowden. Emergency departments have been experiencing increase in psychiatric complaints out of proportion to the infrastructure established to appropriately care for these patients. So these authors conducted a qualitative inquiry of nursing directors, medical directors, and social work behavioral health managers at a sample of hospitals across the country in the hopes of assessing how emergency departments were caring for pediatric and geriatric patients presenting with suicidal ideations. Nursing directors were invited through email to participate in this qualitative study. These nursing directors were then asked to identify a behavioral health manager and a medical director at their site. And these individuals were then sent email invitations to participate as well. A total of 34 participants were interviewed. All the interviews took place on telephone and lasted approximately one hour. Interviewers were blinded to the emergency department group and associated characteristics. Overall, they conducted interviews on 12 nursing directors, 11 medical directors, and 11 behavioral health managers across 17 different emergency departments in 10 different states. The authors identified three themes. The first is the ED clinical leaders described challenges with assessing and providing appropriate care for pediatric and geriatric patients with suicidal ideations in the emergency department. And the examples they gave, there was a natural discomfort of translating what we do when treating adults to children. So for example, if you had an adult who was agitated and needed medication for sedation, while we feel fairly comfortable doing that in adults, there was just this natural discomfort with applying those treatments to a 10-year-old patient. And then looking at geriatrics, they thought it was harder, the diagnostic process of diagnosing a geriatric patient with a psychological complaint, because there's a lot higher chance that this could be a medical um, problem masking itself as a psychiatric complaint. 
The second theme was responders shared how disproportionate challenges for younger and older patients with suicidal ideations in the emergency department would lead to a lot more boarding. And simply stated, it's just harder to find appropriate beds for these patients than it would be your adult psychiatric patients. And finally, they discussed the emotional challenges of treating younger patients with psychiatric complaints. Obviously, treating sick children has an emotional cost no matter what the complaint is. And so this is true whether it's a psychiatric or a physical complaint. So I thought it was a very well done study. And obviously it has a lot of limitations. The sample size is small, but these themes seem fairly generalizable. And it obviously leads to the question is how do we address these problems that are come up in this study? And they discuss some ideas that the interviewees actually put forth, but most of them seem mostly short-term band-aid kind of problem solves like figuring out how to board patients. So if you have a pediatric patient boarding in the emergency department hallway, one example would be they could go to a pediatric unit and board up there with a sitter, which is a far nicer, more conducive place for a child to be boarding than in, than an emergency department. But these are all kind of small solves of specific solutions. The bigger picture, I think, is mostly this is just an example of how the emergency department is being used as a safety net for our fractured healthcare system. And it's being asked to play a role that it was never designed to play. And obviously that leads to a lot of diagnostic and treatment problems with these patients. Yeah, I mean, I think it's as much as the emergency department isn't designed to play this role as the rest of the healthcare system that should be designed to play this role is failing it. And then we just don't have the downstream resources that either the outpatient system or the emergency department system have to get these people into the correct therapeutic relationship as quickly and as painlessly as possible, which is probably a chronic underfunding of the mental health system on parity with actual physical health systems to some extent. But yes, the article, obviously, the people you're talking to are just literally trying to turn the lights on one day and turn the lights off at the end of the day and try not to have anybody harmed more than they need to be harmed by this broken system. So it's the short term, how can we make the emergency department better? And how can we harm the patients that we're objecting to this broken system as little as possible? Can we get them into a slightly quieter, slightly nicer environment to sit around and wait for the broken system to fix them? <laughs> it's, like, it's just a depressing snapshot onto the American healthcare system as much as it is what it is that emergency departments are doing to cope with it, which and none of these answers are great answers, obviously. Indeed. Yeah, I don't think you could design a worse place to stick a patient with a psychiatric complaint than in any one of our emergency departments in America. No, and I like the one quote from Tony. He's like, I think a child spent five days here once. And I'm like, I've unfortunately seen children spend much longer than that in the emergency department for waiting for a psychiatric bed so or waiting for their guardianship to get sorted and so on and so forth. Just terrible, terrible, terrible things. And it's just so sad that this is an accepted part of American healthcare, right? Uh, just add to the list. <laughs> All right. Well, on that happy note, what do we move on? Yes. All right. Let's talk about something cool. Documentation of shared decision-making in the emergency department. Lead author here, David Chartash at the Yale University School of Medicine. And this is an informatics paper here again. And again, unfortunately, using these sort of generally imprecise numbers from a single health system to tell us something we generally knew already to be true. The authors here had two goals. First, an informatics experiment where they tried to generate a tool that they could use for retrospective chart review to identify charts with quote-unquote shared decision-making or a, a general sort of patient discussion of risks and benefits. And then second goal of the paper was more or less describe any basic changes in demographics or usage of shared decision-making and general patient discussion over the time of the study period. 
As to their goals, it's probably reasonable to suggest they succeeded because they did manage to create this sort of natural language processing tool. And they tested on a 600 chart manual sample and they had some individual clinicians review the accuracy of the tool and found that it was about 90 to 95% accurate for identifying shared decision making or general patient discussion in the notes that it analyzed. However, despite this seemingly high accuracy, it still missed about 25% of the instances of shared decision-making or general patient discussion. Then they took this tool and applied it to 2.6 million notes in their health system, and they identified that a grand total of 2.2% explicitly documented shared decision-making, and 22% had some language that indicated a general discussion of risks and benefits. And over this study period, the 2013 to 2020 study period, the rates of each of these things, the, both the serotonin making and the general patient discussion, increased substantially. 300% increase overall in the incidence of explicit shared decision making and 50% increase in documentation of explicit general discussion of risks and benefits. There was a great deal of heterogeneity with respect to authors of documented shared decision making with physicians exceeding the rates of those notes by advanced practice clinicians. Common features of notes featuring shared decision making were head injury as a chief complaint, as well as notes for when patients left against medical advice. Again, so numbers aside, given the general limitations of their tool and the generalizability constraints, these are probably reasonable insights with some face validity with respect to the increases that they've seen in shared decision-making over the time. Certain clinical scenarios, like the ones they described, lend themselves to greater level of uncertainty and appropriateness for discussion, and certain clinical scenarios further reinforce the likelihood of actually documenting the decision-making, such as those left without being seen. As for the general increases over time, there are probably a couple different contributors, both firstly an increased emphasis in communication with patients over the last decade, and secondly, increased availability of decision support instruments with which to help these conversations. And then probably also more templated tools have developed for the electronic health record to help aid in documentation of specific shared decision-making conversations as well. Yeah, I, you know, I'd love to see the correlation with the increase in decision making with the correlation of the availability of dot phrases, because you know this this to me is is mostly a paper on showing how we've improved documenting our decision making. I don't know how much it says about how more often we're actually participating in shared decision making, or is we're just simply better at documenting the fact that we do it. Uh, well, that's why the title's not presence of shared decision making; right. it's a documentation of shared decision making. <laughs> And of course, that's that's probably the biggest weakness of the study is it's simply showing that we do a better job of documenting. Not a great job, but a better job at it. But I thought it was an interesting exercise. I like the whole part about them developing their tool to identify this. And, you know, it didn't perform perfect, but it certainly performed well enough that it would save you from going through thousands and thousands of charts manually. And while it's a blunt tool, I think it gives you certainly a sense of the direction that the data is going. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for precise tools, a natural language processing tool that misses 25% of the cases is not great. But if you're looking at trends over time and you're applying it to 2.6 million charts, it's probably going to be precise enough to be able to estimate the change over time. Right. It's something you couldn't do without it. Yes. All right. Well, our next article, I think, is really cool. This is a fun one. The Influence of the Availability Heuristic in Physicians in the Emergency Department. And the lead author is Dan Lee. So... 
the availability heuristic states that the assessment of an event's likelihoods are affected by how easily the event comes to mind. So basically, we're more likely to think of a diagnosis if, say, we learned about it at a conference recently, or we just saw a patient with the same diagnosis. The next patient we see, we're more likely to think about that diagnosis. And so these authors wanted to objectively examine this phenomenon. And they examined emergency physicians caring for patients presenting with shortness of breath to 104 veterinary affair hospitals over a seven-year period. They looked at the rate of PE testing, so when a D-dimer or a CTPE was ordered, before and after the clinician had a patient diagnosed with a PE. They looked at a total of 7,370 emergency physicians who had over 416,000 patients presenting for shortness of breath. The mean rate of PE testing was around 9%. For physicians who recently had a patient visit with a PE, their rate of PE testing went up on subsequent patients by 1.4% absolutely for the next 10 days. The rate of testing then regressed to baseline following this initial 10-day spike. Now, they did some other interesting stuff to try to isolate the fact that this was isolated to PE testing after a PE was diagnosed. For example, they did not see the same spike in testing for PE when a patient was recently diagnosed with a pneumothorax, meaning this isn't just an increase in testing in general when you find a disease, nor did they say an increase in other kinds of testing like uh, TSH or chest hand x-rays after a patient was diagnosed with PE. So when you have a PE, it doesn't mean you're just testing patients for a whole lot of stuff. It's pretty disease specific in this case, or it seems to be. So again, really nice study. It was pretty cool the way they chose to quantify the effects of the availability heuristic. Obviously, it has some limitations in that it was a retrospective study, but I'm not sure you could get this data differently and, and have it any stronger. And according to this, the availability heuristic seems to be real. It has a small effect, but it seems to be present. Yeah, I mean, I don't see how doing this retrospectively is a whole lot weaker than doing it prospectively in any stretch of the imagination other than the chance that maybe you'd be able to I guess you could ask people what they thought their pretest likelihood of a patient having a PE might be before they did the scan or something like that and see if there are gestalt changes that might be kind of interesting. But I think as far as defining this association and then we'd have to decide if there's a causation underneath it, it's, it's a reasonable study and study design. I'd probably say that out of all the papers in this issue, this is the one that we're most likely to talk about again. Like it's one of those things on shift where it's like your colleague's going to diagnose somebody with pulmonary embolism and I'm be like, oh, your rate for testing is about to increase. It's going to be one of those things that you throw this into all the talks that we give about medical decision making in the emergency department, you know, here it is, here's proof that you're biased by the things that you've seen most recently, or something like that. I think out of all the papers here, you know, individuals with their individual areas of interest will be citing and reading and using these articles in that issue. But this is the one I think that we're all going to sort of just kind of have in the back of our mind is like, remember that article where the people like started testing for something they'd re seen recently? Well, here we are. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's just admirable that like I, I do enjoy studies with a, a simple but very effective way of demonstrating what they're hoping to demonstrate. I also love that it's a single author. Yeah. We don't, don't, don't see very many single author original research studies very true. In, the, in the annals. So he did all the work himself. Nice work. Okay. And finally, our last little article we're going to talk about in this issue is called Door In, Door Out Process Times at Primary Stroke Centers in Chicago. The lead author is Shyam Prabhakaran, and they are at, as you might get, the University of Chicago. This is just a short little observational bit looking at how long it took for various steps to be completed during the evaluation and transfer for patients with acute ischemic stroke. 
In this study, there were three primary stroke centers in Chicago, transferring patients to one of three comprehensive stroke centers. The idea being that there are some time-based interventions for ischemic stroke, primarily endovascular interventions. So these data reflect only a slice of stroke practices and those confined to these particular hospitals in this particular city. Out of 1,200 strokes during the study period, 191 of them required transfer to a comprehensive stroke center, primarily those with imaging or clinical evidence of a large vessel occlusion or other clinical needs for neurocritical care or ongoing evaluation. On average, it takes about two and a half hours to get a patient through these emergency departments at a primary stroke center and on to the comprehensive stroke center. The primary drivers of delays found here were... 1. The amount of time spent in patient handover between the primary stroke center and the transferring ambulance crew. 2. Repeat imaging, such as obtaining a CT angiogram after initial non-contrast CT. And 3. Time spent between transfer center contact and transfer ambulance dispatch. In total, these three highest contributors added about 20 minutes of extra time. Other delays reported by study coordinators included time introduced by an initial missed diagnosis of stroke, patient instability, and initial delays in contacting the stroke center. Worth noting here that none of the primary stroke centers routinely obtained CTA with the non-contrast CT. Thus, the delays in returning to CT for follow-up images may be specific to these centers. All in all, a pretty small case series from a very narrow set of institutions. I'd rather say this study demonstrates the feasibility of performing your own quality improvement study at your institution to track down the modifiable factors influencing your transfer times rather than these patients' actual observations. Some of these delays are quick fixes, like getting a CT-CTA bundle, which I think is deployed at a lot of primary stroke centers already, which could have advantageous downstream effects on other parts of the process. Whereas other changes in the process could have unintended consequences, such as increasing so-called unnecessary transfers or introducing errors into the handoff processes by trying to expedite the ambulance dispatch or the handover process. So it's an interesting look at the processes involved and where there might be chances to improve time. But uh, whether this is applicable to your institution or not, I think it's more of a demonstration of the tool that you could be using. Yeah, I think that's key. I think there's no way you could say this is generalizable to wherever you're trying to improve your own process, but I think it gives you a pathway to do so and how to figure out what are the pinch points in your process that that slow you down. But outside of that, I don't think you can use this in any way to say this is the exact things that we should be fixing logistically in our process to improve our transfer times. Yeah. I mean, some of the things they found are non-modifiable, like missing a diagnosis of stroke, you know, that in a complicated patient, in a complicated presentation, there's nothing systematic that you can change about that. Patient instability, you can't specifically change anything about that. Uh, The other things where there are just, there are administrative delays, they talk about those being potential changes, but then again, downstream consequences of potentially dispatching ambulances sooner may also lead to unnecessary transfers and ambulances out of commission and availability for other things. Right. But it does get the numbers down, and that's what matters. <laughs> that's the only that's the only measure of high quality. It's the care only is metric how, how small the numbers are, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's how it's, it's all about documenting the numbers. It's not actually how small they actually are. It's about how small they can be documented as. Yep, exactly. Quality. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for another month. It does. It does. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a 
a wonderful holiday in November and and, uh, December if we don't talk to you before then. Until next month, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine Podcast. Mm -hmm.